Hello and welcome to the Murder Most Local podcast. My name is Peter O'Shea. I am the author of the Murder Most Local series of books. In each podcast, I will be discussing one of the murders from the book series. The first in the series was published in 2018 and had 47 true historical murders from East Kirk, the area I live in. Since then, I've also covered North Kirk in 2019 and coming out next month, December 2020, will be West Kirk. In this podcast, I will be discussing a murder from the East Kirk book titled Did He or Didn't He? It happened in Garryvaux, right across the bay from where I live, in 1843. Thinking back to when I was writing that story, it was one that people were very interested in at the time. It's quite a gruesome murder. And it was something in the news quite recently that drew my mind back to then. In America at the moment, a woman called Lisa Montgomery is on death row. She could be the first woman executed in the States for 70 years. Lisa's crime goes back to 2004 when she went to Missouri to visit a house of a woman called Bobby Joe Stinnett. She went there under the pretense of buying a puppy. Both women shared an interest in breeding rat terriers and had met on an online forum called Ratter Chatter. On that occasion, Montgomery posed as a woman called Darlene Fisher. At the time, Bobby Joe Stinnett was eight months pregnant and later that day, she was found by her mother in a pool of blood in her own house. She had been strangled. Her womb was cut open. Her baby was missing. The following day, Montgomery was found and tracked down by the police. She had a baby claiming to be her own. So what drew me to that murder that linked back to the one in Garryvaux? Well, in Garryvaux in 1843, a woman was missing for several weeks. And then suddenly in the month of June, in a cornfield, this woman, Mary Donovan, was found in a shallow grave. She too, like Bobby Joe, was heavily pregnant at the time. And her womb had been cut open. The baby hadn't been taken in this case though. It was found mutilated nearby. So how did Mary Donovan come to be found in a wheat field in the month of June, badly mutilated? So Mary Donovan was heavily pregnant. She'd been staying with friends and relations and she'd been going from house to house, travelling about. Society, I suppose, had turned its back on Mary. She wasn't married and to be pregnant and unmarried in the 1800s was seen as a disgrace. The father wasn't willing to stand by her and and marry her. Mary, it was said, walked with a limp and had a turn in her neck, so she was no great catch for a marriage. At the time in Ireland, marriage, particularly for farmers, they very much married farmers and with bigger farms. For poorer people, certainly a farmer wasn't going to marry a a labourer's daughter. So therefore, that's how Mary came to be going about the place with nowhere to stay. The night before she disappeared, she stayed with her aunt, Frances Walsh, and when she left that morning, she told her aunt she was going to see the local priest. Also that same night before, there was a christening in a nearby farm 
of a horns. I suppose we all think of famine Ireland, pre-famine Ireland, that people were starving and very poor, but not in all cases. In Ahern's that night, they were up most of the night celebrating the christening. And as Mary left her aunts the next morning, she met some of the christening party going home. She was seen on the road that morning and she'd met a local farmer, William Barry, before she disappeared. Skipping forward to the day that the body was found by a man called Timothy McCarthy, William Barry was arrested that same evening. He denied any involvement in it. He denied that his clothes had been washed that same day. He also claimed that the stains that were on his clothes that couldn't be washed out were paint. Later, he admitted that he had washed his clothes. William Barry wasn't actually held in custody for very long, and sometime later, a man came forward with information, and then William Barry was nowhere to be seen for several weeks. Barry was a farmer. He'd rented a, a reasonable-sized farm from a landlord, and he was a, I suppose he saw himself as being a class above the general labourer. He was married, so for him to be anyway insinuated in the death of Mary Donovan was a disgrace. An inquest was held, and nobody came forward at the inquest. It wasn't until after the inquest that the information came forward. The local priest offered a reward and called at the pulpit for people to come forward with information, and then a man came forward. John Hennessy gave information that he saw William Barry in a field with Mary Donovan that very morning. The problem with his information was he hadn't come forward at the time and he'd actually said he'd witnessed the crime taking place, but he ran off. He didn't tell anyone he met on his way home, nor did he tell anyone else. So I suppose at the time, and this is why the, the reason why I'm covering this murder, at the time when I was writing the book, I was very much holding back on just how bad a crime it was. We were worried about typing gruesome details in and just revealing just how bad it was. And this is why it shocked the community at the time. And it's very much one of those murders that's been suppressed by history. It's disappeared. It was completely unheard of. So when I said the body was badly mutilated, the legs and arms were cut off and thrown around the place about. There was a four-foot-long grave dug but it was only a few inches deep. It was a shallow grave, because when they got down through the soil, it was quite gravelly and they couldn't dig any further. Her head and face were so badly beaten that it was actually the clothes that identified Mary Donovan. It was her sister, Johanna, that recognised her clothes, and she'd met her a few days previously. The unborn baby was beside her in the shallow grave. Its skull was smashed to pieces. Suspicion grew on William Barry when he disappeared, but weeks later, he did turn up and come back again. And then, it was March of the following year that the case came before a jury. He pleaded not guilty, and the prosecution felt that there was no way the case could be reduced to one of manslaughter. So, if William Barry was to be found guilty of murder on the charge, he would, no doubt, face the hangman. He was described in court as a respectable-looking fellow, typical of his farming class. It was unusual that a respectable sort of fellow would be in court back then on the charge of murder. The evidence against them was both direct and circumstantial. It was heard that when William Barry returned from 
the christening party that morning, having been seen speaking with Mary Donovan on the road, that he changed his clothes, put on his working clothes, and said he was going to a neighbour farm, Mackey's, for a horse. Now, in court, the prosecution proved quite easily that he never went to Mackey's that morning. Several witnesses said that he never came there. One servant of William Barry's, who had gone to Mackey's that morning on another errand, also verified that story that he never went there. So where did he go? When he returned home that very morning that Mary Donovan was killed, William Barry went to sleep. He'd been up all night at the party, and had he done the deed that morning, certainly wouldn't think he'd fallen asleep. But again, it all rested on this testimony of John Hennessy, who said he went to the clover field that day, and he was curious when he saw Mary Donovan and William Barry in a field together. He was curious what they were doing. He'd known William Barry, he knew he was married, and he thought, what was he doing with a young woman in the field? So John Hennessy's reasons were the curiosity that he kept watching what they were doing. He hid out of sight. He was a field or two away from him. He was behind a furze bush and he watched. He didn't see what he thought he was going to see. He saw William Barry attack Mary Donovan and he fled. He didn't tell anyone. He met people on his way home that day. He didn't tell them. The reward of £50, of course, was offered and it was then that John Hennessy came forward. Now in court, he denied that was the reason. He said it was the priest in Mass that encouraged him to come forward. The defence took the opportunity, knowing that if they could put down the evidence of John Hennessy, that they could win the case. O'Hay for the defence asked Hennessy directly, would you take the reward? And Hennessy replied, if a fool got money, he would take it. Would you take blood money? But Hennessy wouldn't respond to this. Then O'Hay said, Don't you know, you would take money as the price of this man's blood. But Hennessy felt that he wasn't doing that. He said, I would not hang a man for money. But the defence kept going. Will you take the price of this man's blood? Will you take the reward? To which Hennessy didn't reply. But O'Hay had done the damage. He put forward the notion that Hennessy was only coming forward, giving information just to get the reward. He said, what type of a man could Hennessy be? What type of a man could see a woman being beaten in a field and run away? He didn't argue what type of a man could beat a woman. He said the opposite, but it was enough. In court that day, it all hung on Hennessy's evidence. The circumstantial evidence around the case certainly pointed to William Barry's involvement with Mary Donovan, but they had nothing direct on him. So when John Hennessy was questioned by the prosecution, he was very clear. From his far-off vantage point that day, he knew what was happening. In fact, he said, I knew by the strokes he was giving her that he was killing her. But still, that just played into the defence even more. Again, John Hennessy had not done anything about it. If he felt he couldn't stop it that day, and that Mary Donovan was already killed before his very eyes, why didn't he that very day go to the police, go to the parish priest, or tell a local magistrate, which he didn't? The inquest, which would have happened the very next day, and would have been in in the nearest house, he didn't attend it. He knew what was going on, and he didn't go near it. He didn't come forward with information. The inquest certainly would have been his opportunity, 
and it would have found a verdict that very day. He could have spoke up. His testimony in the evidence would have changed the verdict of the evidence and William Barry would have been arrested and taken into custody based on that. So for some reason John Hennessy didn't do that and now it brought the whole case into doubt. When he got his chance to speak, oh hey, for the defence again, he said there was three grounds for the case, but it all hung on John Hennessy's testimony. And he attacked the character of John Hennessy. He brought up the reward numerous times. And in his very eloquent speech, he tore to pieces the credibility of John Hennessy. Also that day in court, the defence called William Barry's landlord, which seems a completely trivial point. But when John Penrose Fitzgerald took the stand, he gave a character reference for William Barry. Now back then, for the local priest or a landlord or such a respectable man to give a character reference, it meant that he possibly really believed William Barry was, as he said, a respectable person and he'd never been in trouble before. That went enormously towards convincing the jury that William Barry was not the type of man that was driven to beating a pregnant woman to death in a field. Juries decide for hours and get locked up in hotels by night and it goes on for days and they can't decide. But when the man's life was at stake, it was serious. They often returned to court and the foreman decided that they couldn't reach a decision. The judge couldn't accept it and he wanted a breakthrough in a case and he would lock him up again for a while, tell him to go back and decide. But that day, it took 10 minutes, 10 minutes to decide. And they returned the verdict of not guilty. So well known was William Barry that cheering broke out in court for William Barry. There was no thoughts in court that day for Mary Donovan. Certainly, her sister Johanna was there, her sister Elizabeth was there, and her aunt. But the law and public opinion was on William Barry's side. They'd forgotten how depraved the crime it was, and he was free. The prosecution, I suppose, failed to identify William Barry as the man that done it. They also never alluded to who the baby's father was. Who would have done such a crime? Somebody had got Mary Donovan pregnant, and it was that man who would have been driven, driven by society, driven by religion, driven by respectability in Ireland at the time, driven to silence the fact that Mary Dunham was pregnant. Mary Dunham had told her aunt that she was going to the parish priest. Had she gone to the parish priest and told that somebody had had their wicked way with her and now she was six months pregnant, the very thought of the parish priest coming around to your house in front of your wife, was that enough to drive a man to kill, to mutilate, to murder, to pull a unborn baby from a womb and smash its head in. In Ireland at the time, unfortunately, it was, and it did do that in some cases. In this case, do we have enough to proof to say that William Barry did do it? Sometimes the law came on the side that if William Barry didn't do it, who did do it? Men were hung far less, and with less evidence. But in this case, it was a very unusual one that they came so close and he got away. It's a matter of opinion. 180 years later, looking back, do we think that William Barry did it or not? Certainly, there was circumstantial evidence. 
even in setting aside John Hennessy's evidence, the circumstantial evidence was there. If he was the father of the child, which of course nowadays we'd have things like DNA to prove, which they hadn't at the time, certainly the motive was there. So what could have possibly driven William Barry to killing Mary Donovan that day, if indeed he did? Mary Donovan had said she was going to the parish priest. Did she threaten William Barry? Did she say, I will tell the priest, I'll tell the priest, you're the father of my child? And if she did, what would have happened? Had the parish priest come round to William Barry, I think it was more the threat of the parish priest was worse than the parish priest himself, because the priest would have kept William Barry's family together. The onus seems to be on the woman in this case, and no doubt Mary Donovan would have been removed from the community and taken away to have her child somewhere out of the way. William Barry possibly would have been protected by the Catholic Church, but Barry didn't see that at the time. What does strike me, though, is how little regard there is for Mary Donovan's life and the life of her unborn child. It seems society says, let's just forget about it. Let's just forget about them. Let's not talk about this murder again because the shame that it brought to the community. And that's why it's such a little-known case. What strikes me as strange, though, and as strange and all as this murder is, that within 20 years in Townland, very nearby, another murder occurred. The motive seems similar. A woman, sex, whatever you want to call it. Maybe in another podcast in the future we'll cover this topic. These murders feature in Murder Most Local, the historic murders of East Cork. This is Peter O'Shea. If you would like to give feedback, we would be delighted to hear from you. You can contact me on Facebook at Ballycotton History or on Instagram at Murder Most Local. Thank you for listening to my podcast, Murder Most Local.